The Scream Kings are in no way responsible for any encounters with the paranormal, extraterrestrial abductions, eldritch insanity, hauntings, curses, hexes, demonic possessions, cryptozoological sightings, or any loss of sleep that results from listening to this podcast. This is the Screen Kings podcast. I'm Max George. I'm Nathaniel Darkish. And I'm Kiara Amato. By commission of the Library of Congress to make assay of the secular folk, podcasts of West Virginia, Kentucky, Tennessee, including the Mississippi River Valley and the Ozark Mountains. Okay, well, welcome back. We are here with a very exciting uh, text today that we're going to be digging into. We don't get to uh, get into a lot of the horror literature nearly as much as I usually want, so I'm very excited to talk about a horror book. Uh, and we also have a wonderful guest, uh, as you heard, Kiara Amato, who has been on the podcast before, which means that we need to kick things off first by uh, knighting her uh, then we'll have her talk a little bit more about, uh, you know, who she is and, and uh, her uh, horror bona fides. So upon this day, the 3rd of April, in the year of our Lord, 2022, Kiara Amato, we knight thee a scream duchess. I feel so honored in this moment. <laughs> uh, Kiara, we are... Super good friends. Uh, we started working together a few years back. We went to London together, and, and that really solidified our relationship together. But you were an exciting guest we had on episode 22, which was the Great Alien Debate. Uh, we had you and another friend on, and we kind of talked about the existence of extraterrestrials, if they exist, if they don't exist, and some of the evidence as to why so being in the know of aliens kiara uh can you give us like a an update on where we're at in the world of extraterrestrials yeah what what what's new in the world of uh ufos and and uh, alien life okay well i know everybody is probably sick to death of hearing about the oscar slap but i read the most ridiculous news article today that apparently According to a former official with Britain's Ministry of Defense, alien life forms that happen to tune into the Oscars could have divisive thoughts um, about <laughs> humans acting that way, especially <laughs> because apparently aliens will know. I'm not sure how they will know, but they will know Will Smith already from Independence Day. Um, and apparently <laughs> he, uh, he punched out an alien um, in that movie. And then also, you know, he has his role in Men in Black. So according to this um, former official, uh, Smith's role in Men in Black could suggest to aliens that Smith is one of the planet's primary defenders. Oh, my Lord. So aliens apparently are keeping a close eye on Will Smith. And, you know, I don't know. This Oscars thing could have bigger ripples than we even knew across the universe. 
the fate of our galaxy was in the hand that slapped Chris Rock. It's just wild times out there. It's it's true, though. I think maybe in this case, it's just solidifying that he just creates most people by punching or slapping them. And so maybe it just recontextualizes uh, Independence Day in a, in a much more positive light. <laughs> Except for now I'm worried that if aliens come to Earth, they're going to think that's our custom for people we like. Yeah, just slap them right across the face. And we're going to get a lot of alien slaps and punches. Hey, better that than, you know, getting shot. Or probed. Well, I don't <laughs> I'm not going to yuck anyone's yum. <laughs> uh, speaking of cosmic horror, uh, Nathaniel, you kind of gave us a nice little intro about what we'll be talking about today. And I know you're very excited. And Yes. So am I, so is Kiara. Uh, we're going to be talking about a book called A Lush and Seething Hill. It has such a wonderful title. Right. Uh, every, every time I see the book just laying around my house, I just smile a little, because what, what an incredible title name. Yes, uh, it is, yes. Uh, a Lush and Seething Hell, which just sounds so, like, it feels nice on the tongue, by John Horner Jacobs. Uh, who... Jingleheimer Schmidt? I can't say his name without saying Jingleheimer Schmidt. Well, you know, now now you will never be able to get him on because oh. you have, have just, you know, ostracized him in such a way. No, we're oh going to say lots of very positive <laughs> things about this, so hopefully, you know, uh, if you ever happen to hear this, Mr. Jacobs, we love your work. Uh, even if Max keeps adding Jingleheimer Schmidt to your name. <laughs> So, Nathaniel, you talked about this book on one of our previous episodes, and it yes. sounded so fascinating that that recording, I actually went to Amazon and bought the book as we were wrapping up the episode. Uh, and then I think I posted it to my Instagram story, and is that where you saw it, Kiara, and bought the book as well? Yes, yes, I saw it. I think I bought it before I even told you that I got it. Um, <laughs> and then it was just off to the races. Yeah, so this book, a lot of like the themes that we're going to be talking about, it's kind of, I don't know, it's it's made ripples. I saw it on a TikTok video about like top 10 horror books. Uh, it's kind of making the rounds, I feel like. Um, yeah. Nathaniel, you called it before it even started, so way to go. Well, I, to, to be fair, it, it has also been kind of making the rounds. Like, that's what, how it came into, to, you know, my orbit was... Just, you know, I, I kept seeing little references to it all over horror Twitter and on uh, Goodreads, which I'm uh, uh, absurdly active on. If if anyone follows me on Goodreads, I apologize for how many updates you will see from me because I read so freaking much. Um, but yeah, it's it's just been, you know, kind of been one of those those ones that you know, has been gaining a lot of traction in the horror community. I think especially among a lot of horror writers where, you know, people, you know, these other writers are, are reading it and just going, Oh, this, this prose is just redonkulous. Like, yeah. Yeah. And before we get into that, because really the prose was hypnotic, let's kind of clarify though. It, it is two separate novellas. Yes. Uh, the first novella is the sea dreams. It is the sky. And then the second one is My Heart Struck Sorrow. Both what we're gonna do. bangers of names. Absolutely. Uh, and very indicative of kind of the prose that we were talking about. It, there's a way that this author kind of speaks to us that is very 
enticing and captivating, but also sinister to some extent. But anyway, what we want to do is kind of break down each story and actually rate them separately. Because while it is one book, there are two stories to be told here. And the reason we have Kiara on is, Kiara, you and I were essentially live texting as we were reading this book. You ate we it up. Do you want to give us, you know, just kind of some of your superficial thoughts that you had as you were reading this book as to why you wanted to come on to the podcast? Sure. Um, well, I mean, I think you both kind of mentioned this. The prose is so good. I would say it's it's decadent. I don't know. I'm, I mean, aside from before getting into kind of what the each one is about, you know how sometimes you read books and there's words that you don't know and you're just like, oh man, the author got a little crazy with the thesaurus here. Mm. When I, I had to look up so many words when reading these books and, and I think I, I mentioned this before we started recording, I would consider myself to have a pretty big vocabulary, but I had to look up so many words and instead of feeling like this was a pretentious word choice, I would look it up and be like, yes, this is the only word that could have described what he was trying to say. Like I said, I, I just I think the prose is super decadent in that way. It's it just kind of sucks you in. De- decadent is such a good word though, because you usually associate decadence, you know, with some sort of rich food that you're eating and it's just so delicious and intriguing. But also at the same time, if you have too much of it, it can get a little nauseating. Yeah. Uh, but. And that's what this book did in a way that you wanted to keep eating this decadent treat, but you knew your stomach was going to hurt because of it, in a way. Your brain stomach. Your brain stomach. Gotta pull out the brain tums at the end of the day. Uh, Yeah, you're so right. Um, It it kind of, as you were saying, that reminded me of The Witch with Black Phillip. It would sound like to live deliciously. It's kind of like that same, I don't know, it's so good, but has that darkness in it yeah but both stories um you know the the first one is such a grand cosmic scale story you know both of these tales are are so different i think overall my comments are about the way that he wrote i think in the foreword the person who wrote the foreword talked about being jealous of how Jacobs wrote these stories. And I agree, like I'm not much of a writer, but I am jealous that I am not the person who came up with these and then put them to paper. Yeah, that's that's a great intro into kind of talking about uh, the first of the book. Nathaniel, anything you want to say before we dive into the sea that dreams it is the sky? Um, No, I mean, it's just other than that, this book has made me a lifelong fan of John Horner Jacobs. Like, I'm going to read everything this dude has ever written now because just good criminy. Like, his ability to weave a tale and also to, yeah, just put words on the page that are, yeah, like, like you nailed it. It's, it's not just that his, um, his diction is very, you know, intelligent and sometimes obscure, but it's, it's always perfect. And and just like the way, like the analogies that he came up with, you know, all all of the figurative language, it was, it was a feast for me, you know, a, a writer, an English teacher, like it, it scratched an itch in my brain that almost no other book has, or you know, very few other books have, 
you know, it's it's the kind of thing that only a handful of authors really, I think, pull off at that level. And uh, he's he's he he's going to be one to watch for for the the rest of his natural life in terms of his his writing. So yeah, but yeah. Let's let's get into the the specific stories though. All right. So the first uh, novella that we're going to talk about is the first one that appears in the book, of course. The sea dreams is the sky, uh, and kind of the hearkening back to what Kiara was just saying. The foreword for both of these stories is that it's setting the scene for cosmic horror, which to me uh, kind of resonates with what Lovecraft would write. You know, these these horror fictions that kind of have the slow descent into insanity almost where you start kind of blurring the lines of what's really happening and what's in the minds of the characters so the sea dreams is the sky uh it's about a young college student who meets this mysterious man who's known as the eye he's kind of a, a local legend in the in the town uh, they develop this budding friendship and ultimately he goes to this fictional country that is beset in war and he in asks south america in South America, thank you. And he asks this college student to kind of take care of his house, and she's a literary student, so she can read his materials. And ultimately, what we start to find out is he was part of you know some of these guerrilla prisoner of war situations in this country he's returned to. Uh, but in particular, he's uncovering this kind of cryptic story alongside these very graphic, you know, sadistic, pornographic. Uh, fetishized pictures that start to kind of unravel this weird mental tale between these two characters. His descent into madness and her chasing after that descent. Uh, and that's a, a very quick Spark Notes version of it all. Uh, the first story, I believe, is well over 200 pages or so. Yeah. Um, and I, I just kind of wanted to add that, you know, the, the, the I was, I guess, the, like the most beloved poet from this, you know, fictional South American country, um, but, you know, was exiled when this, you know, uh, dictatorship regime took over. And so him going back is this, is this really dangerous move. Uh, and so, you know, that, that's, you know, part of the, the interesting thing is that, you know, they were expatriates from their you know, home country, I think they were living in Spain, right? Um, and, you know, them going back is, you know, going into the the jaws of a dragon, basically. Like, you know, it's it's super dangerous. It is a bad place to be. Uh, and But this mystery is so strong and so compelling that that's what pulls them there. Which, you know, definitely is... I think a great example of kind of how this story knows its uh, inspirational source material. Uh, you know, when when we're looking at any cosmic horror, right, we we usually look to Lovecraft or you know some of his contemporaries as kind of the the pinnacle of kind of like what defines that genre. And what I really liked about this is that like we have these characters that do a good job of kind of fitting that mold, but also sort of um, reinterpreting it. Because, you know, if, if you, of course, you know, Lovecraft, for example, was very notoriously very racist and very sexist. And so I, I like that in some ways the I and our main character 
you know kind of fit within the roles of Lovecraft's work in terms of like they they're scholars, they're they're uh, writers, you know, which are you know the kinds of characters that we see in a lot of Lovecraft stories, but like they're not white. They are you know our main character is a woman and like you know it's so it's kind of cool to see how while having characters that both kind of fit those that traditional role they also break from it which uh really just makes it uh, a, an even cooler exploration of you know what cosmic horror can do while still using a lot of those classic conventions yeah and i think kind of this plot of this first novella really it, it's kind of a trickle of a burn and when i was first reading it i was like okay you know the story's good but i'm not grappled yet <laughs> not captivated by it um and then all of a sudden we start to find isabel looking through these secret manuscripts about the profane work and this kind of evocation of something unholy or cosmic and then she you know essentially loses her life and goes to this war-torn country to try and find the eye um and eventually i couldn't put it down and this was kind of where the start of John Horner's prose really started captivating me. Uh, the way he writes, Kiara, you nailed it on the head. It feels like Black Philip talking to you. Kind of this savory, decadent kind of prose that just lulls you into a false sense of security and then something terrifying happens and it, it just kind of poisons you a little bit in a good way. Uh, it's hard to describe almost. It is. And I think it's interesting. You know, I took a couple, uh, I noted down a couple things from examples from the text. And, and one of the things is um, that they kept talking about was the sweet miasma of pain. Yeah. And it's interesting because that also kind of has those food connotations. And there's a line right after that that talks about um, that we are bits of meat in a watery broth. And that also is kind of that food idea. So it's interesting that that overall, without making that connection until just now, it feels very um, food-related. And we've used a lot of food-related words to describe it. And even within the text, even though it's gross, things like you were talking about before, uh, it's still referred to in those kind of edible terms. Uh, another facet of this first novella that I really liked is just our main characters. We have the Eye, who is kind of this local legend in the town of being this mysterious author who fell from grace, so to speak. Who has um, one eye. True. Um, and Isabel as well. Um, you know, she's a queer individual. She starts off the story dating another, you know, female and she's a college student trying to you know, get her education and going through life and she encounters this life-changing individual and it feels very relatable at least it did for me you know who of us weren't that plucky college student who found their mentor in college and then in some way started to idolize them you know it feels very much like that in this book in this novella excuse me and the eye himself, he's enigmatic, he's mysterious, but he's also engaging and he teaches Isabel about kind of the the sinister nature of a lot of film and literature and it's kind of this weird dynamic, really, where you have this mysterious spooky teacher 
and this plucky young college student and the dynamic between them for me in the first novella was really uh deep i thought that their characters were very realized uh it didn't feel contrived and i cared quite a bit for both characters separately and then also their their motivation together isabel's attempt to try and find the eye at the end of the story yeah, and I think it would be really easy for their relationship to seem kind of predatory, you know, given the age difference and the fact that she does kind of idolize him a bit. And I really like that they didn't go there at all, uh, because like you said, I, I cared about both the characters, and I think it made sense, given the relationship that they'd built, that Isabel went to look for him when he disappeared. Um, and it wasn't out of any kind of misguided romance or anything like that. I liked that that wasn't a part of it yeah it wasn't kind of that weird taboo teacher student relationship that exists in media right yeah we, they, didn't, we didn't have hot for teacher yeah <laughs> it, it was an actual relationship that exists in the world my college mentor i still talk to her and we have very engaging conversation and that's uh, impactful for relationship in my life. So having that set up in this first novella really made me care for both characters. And then you mix in all of the horror thematics into everything. Uh, yeah. These like cryptic, morbid writings and photos that don't really have any sort of an explanation, um, but they're just twisted and there's you know, stuff about blood play and scat play and all this taboo stuff that you don't really read or talk about and how that is messing with Isabel's mind and making her kind of question the eye's motivations and intentions and then ultimately his safety. What's going on here? Yeah, and along those lines, I also really liked that the mystery, you know, was was very threatening all the way through, you know? Yes, yeah. Yeah, that, that when she was traveling through, I think, was, was the fictional country called Madeira? Yes, I believe so. Um, yeah, so as she's traveling through Madeira, and she's trying to, you know, put together where he could possibly be, and she's, you know, visiting these different homes and traveling the countryside and all of that, one, she was coming upon these scenes where, like, you know, people had been tortured. You know, she's not just finding these horrible texts, but also finding you know, people post-torture and all of that, just, you know, these corpses and, and you know, she has these weird, vague, menacing uh, government agents that are following her around and all of that, like, just really makes that threat omnipresent. And then the interesting thing is that the big bad, the real terror of the story is so much worse than any of those things. Like, we were scared for her safety the whole way through, but then once we get to kind of the conclusion of the story, it's so much bigger and weirder and more upsetting than anything that, you know, in any threat that a torturer or a, you know, South American dictator could, could usually throw at somebody. Yeah, and I think the pacing of that all was really thought out and, again, realistic. It, it started out as kind of a kindling and then the fire lit and it got bigger and it got bigger and it got bigger until the climax of the book where you are faced with kind of this cosmic presence and the antagonist like you said nathaniel is just so much bigger than anything we could ever think <laughs> but scattered into that journey 
There are some amazing horror elements. One of my favorite parts was the creepy old grandma who Isabel finds, and it's like this weird granny who used to run an orphanage, if I recall correctly, and she has this giant tree in the front yard that has shoes, like children's shoes, tied to it. It felt very Baba Yaga meets modern day. <laughs> Uh, it was creepy. Kiara, you have a note about the grandma. What did you think? I love her. I think so what happened, she'd had several children that had died. And then out of kind of cruelty, I guess, people in her village would bring shoes, you know, of little feet. Her kids' little feet never got to wear shoes that walked and things like that. So when she was ready, she would dip them in red paint and then put a fortune inside. And it kind of oh, seemed yeah. like the fortunes that she put inside the shoes were just kind of based on her own whims, but it wasn't anything kind about it. Um, she would just kind of write things and leave it to the parents to puzzle out or fret over. Uh, and one of the things that I liked is they like describe her as, um, Jacobs describes her as having tons of wrinkles. Uh, and at first, Isabel thinks that they're perhaps laugh lines. And then the old woman makes a face and she realizes that they weren't laugh lines at all. It was like this deep-seated hatred. And I thought that was, really interesting because i don't know I, I think with people like baba yaga i tend to want to humanize them a little bit mm. and i like that this old woman was just a mean old woman um and one of my favorite parts too is which i thought was really relatable is that this old lady gives isabel her fortune and it's not a very nice fortune and i think in kind of a you know the way you feel when you're Young and headstrong, Isabel wanted to give the old lady a rude fortune back. Um, and she says something to the effect that you're going to die alone and you won't feel death release and soon you'll be forgotten, which I think she intended to come across as just mean and cruel and spiteful. And the old lady just laughed at her and like everybody's forgotten. Nobody knows release. And I thought that was an interesting dynamic because I, I think that as a young person, we tend to think that we know a lot and all it takes is, you know, some well-placed words from an older person to put us in our place. Yeah, there's there's all these great, like, very human moments woven in. And also, like, I, I feel like this story does some really brilliant stuff with the setting. Like, I feel like Madeira felt like a real place. Um a horrifying place but certainly it felt very real in a lot of ways um i i like the there's the way that that culture was played with uh you know community was played with all of these themes were really interesting and relatable and just i don't know it, it just felt like there was so much wisdom in this story and, you know, kind of interestingly enough, you know, one of the big things that I think this story was doing, you know, wasn't just playing with cosmic horror tropes and uh, storytelling methods. It was also using, you know, kind of South American magical realism as well. And just the way that it kind of blended those two and, and created this, you know, place in South America that is, you know, that doesn't exist, but is just the most cruel, most broken version of uh any south american culture was so powerful and i yeah i, I just loved it i really liked the backdrop of civil unrest and it's interesting too because you have this character that cleave um who the eye kind of thinks 
in his interactions with him that he's part of the CIA. Mm. Uh, he's American, and Khalif kind of lets him believe that, even though he's an agent of darkness, I guess you could say. <laughs> an eldritch horror. <laughs> yes, and I think that that kind of makes you think, right? Because historically, American ha America has kind of dabbled, perhaps, where they shouldn't in <laughs> South American politics. And Understatement so much. Yeah, yeah, I know. I was <laughs> very much an understatement. <laughs> so it was kind of this thing where it made you consider, oh my gosh, if this was if this was real life, you know, um, any instance of civil unrest across the world, what if it was part of something like this, part of a calling to an eldritch horror and that agents of chaos, you know, who people believe belong to different organizations can just be sewing and manipulating uh, events to kind of bring this eldritch horror to life. I mean, you just have continued to describe the CIA, so. <laughs> oh, man. I pictured that agent. Um, I'm a big X-Files fan, and I absolutely pictured him as Krychek from the X-Files. I'm not sure if, you, if you're familiar with him. Not as familiar as I ought to be, but I, I, th I think I know who you're talking about. Putting everything that we've talked about aside, when I was reading this book, once Isabel left to go to Madeira, I could not put it down. It was this weird sense, almost, I don't want to use the word addiction, because that is very hyperbolic, um, but Kiara, I think you and I both were reading it at the same time. It was like one o'clock in the morning. We just could not stop. Uh, it just pulled me in. And for the next few days, I kind of started seeing weird things out of my periphery. I'm sure I was just, you know, my subconscious was still focused on this book and the story it was telling. But I felt like things were outside my window at night or I'd hear something very benign and my brain would turn it into something very big and scary uh, one night in particular there was a, a weed or a bramble outside of my window and it was windy and it was kind of brushing on my window and i immediately thought there was some sort of animal or human outside my window looking in trying to get in you know and what i'm getting at here is this book created a level of dread that i have not encountered in any other horror fiction book Probably the closest I've gotten to the same sort of feeling was The Exorcist. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, that is only towards the end of the book. A large majority of The Exorcist is actually rather tame. Uh, there are very short moments of that book that are very intense, but a majority of it, you know, rather benign. And so this book causing me to do that, it was similar to Hereditary in some extent of... It follows you. Uh, it... It's sticks with you and even now there are like noises in my house that are going off and i feel my body start to kind of get hyper aware of those sounds and my upstairs neighbors creaking and stepping around and that to me is a testament and power to this first novella for me is talking about it is summoning that primal fear inside me and uh, i don't know it's it's such a good read it will scare the shit out of you. <laughs> uh, it's good. It really is. It made me, there's this one part where, you know, uh, Cleve starts to materialize in Spain when she's 
before she's gone to Megara, and uh, there's a cat that the eye has told her to feed for her own protection. And until that moment, it's been a very minor character. But when this dark figure starts to materialize, it stands sentry and the figure dissipates. And never have I ever been more glad to have a cat because I agree. <laughs> I, it feel it almost felt like um, you said that reading it was summoning like feelings of dread within you. But I felt like I had to read it and I had to finish. But by reading it, I was somehow summoning the eldritch cosmic horror that was in this book and i couldn't stop yeah i agree you're you're just describing the experience of being a protagonist in a uh you know <laughs> cosmic horror story so it, yeah if it makes you feel that way then clearly he job. knows what he's doing <laughs> so as far as uh <clears throat> cons go i did want a little bit more explanation i know it's cosmic horror it's very lovecrafty and it's very kind of insane and a lot of the unknown is very important when it comes to these types of stories yes uh, but i you know me i'm the occultist i'm the demoniac i i wanted to know where these ancient texts were from and what purpose they served and what would they summon and which eldritch god in particular was in madera and i I just wanted more because I, I loved this story so much. And then I also, thinking back on it, I do feel the ending was incredibly climactic and poetic, but kind of the wrap up, the very end of the story did deflate a little bit for me. And I wonder if that is kind of an element to cosmic horror because the second book did this for me, but like put a bad taste in my mouth. Nathaniel, can you shed some light on that? Is that kind of a component of cosmic horror? Kind of a, a softer landing at the end? Yes and no. I would say if we are going to have, you know, basically, if we know what happens to our main character, then yeah, it usually just kind of pans out and it's like, oh, and they're, you know, insane or they were never heard from again, or but they're sometimes seen wandering the woods or whatever. And so, like, this did fit that kind of tradition. Um, I would say, you know, more often, a lot of times, I, the cosmic horror I've read tends to just end with, oh no, madness, and then suddenly, like, the, it just it's over, and you don't really know what happens next, but you assume that the whole world gets consumed or something. But, yeah, just the nature of kind of, I guess, her being able to face the madness and then get rid of it by plucking out her eye was mm. you know almost a, a, a counter spell and yeah and unfortunately at that point it just kind of does feel a little flat just because it feels almost too easy but yeah. but it was also like perfectly set up like from the very beginning with the eye character um you know that he did the same thing and so I didn't feel dissatisfied, but I kind of did. <laughs> it, it, like, he set it up perfectly, but I still kind of wanted a little bit more. Just a teeny bit more answers, or a teeny bit more, I don't know, earth-shattering repercussions. I agree. I think, you know, it ends with her plucking out her eye, and then uh, the eye's work that he, where he writes about his experiences is called uh, Below, Behind, Beneath, Between. And so when she plucks out her eye and she kind of goes in this in-between space, 
I feel like that would have been a really clean way to end it. And that's, you know, ambiguous, but I think that that would leave it open to me to maybe think that perhaps although she saw the eye's dead body, maybe he was still somehow there in that between spot. Mm. I think that the epilogue is what kind of deflated it for me because, you know, obviously she was fine. Yeah, yeah. I think that a more ambiguous ending would have been a little bit more, I don't know, magical. Yeah, I agree. So wrapping up, um, Kara, I'm sure you're aware, but we we like to rate movies and kind of horror content that we talk about on the show with crowns and screams. Crowns ranging from 0 to 10, 10 being perfection and 0 being, you know... Oh, Birdemic. The, uh, Halloween Kills or whatever that terrible show is. Uh, I thought you were going to say Malignant and I was going to fight oh, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Malignant's up there too. Uh, well, down there on the, the crown side. <laughs> yes. Uh, so as far as crowns go, I gave it an 8. Um, I loved it. The ending was good. Uh, I don't know why I won't rate it higher there's something in me though that's saying an eight is like perfection for me it was a good read it was a fun read where it was a novella i i think that may play a part into it i i can't really tell why i'm not willing to give this a higher rating um i gave it an eight as well i really loved it um but yeah there there was just something that didn't quite just make me absolutely smitten with this particular novella, but we'll get into the one that I am just <laughs> head over heels for in, in a minute. So, Kiara. Kiara? I'm over here, I would say nine and a half. I think I mentioned the last time that I was on that I read a lot of Stephen King, and I think that this was really refreshing to me. It was a totally different horror voice. I loved it. I liked that it was a shorter novella. I was really impressed at how fleshed out everything felt mm. for a shorter novel. The only reason I would even knock off half a point is because I feel like there are a lot of people in my life that I can't recommend this to, which <laughs> is, you know, nothing against that. But I, I don't know if I could be like, Mom, read this. And that's my only downside to that. But other than that, I absolutely adored this. And any cons or critiques I had for it are just totally outshone by how much i loved it in fact before we go on to um on to the next part can i read that part from that poem i think i screenshotted it yeah when we were yeah. reading it together max let's let's rate it screams first and then we'll conclude with the horror decadence that you have for us uh so screams i gave it a nine uh this book got to me it's getting to me right now just talking about the dumb thing uh it it summons something for me in a very kind of twisted and dark level and i don't know i gave it a nine it 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 scares me it still scares me there are bumps going on upstairs and they they keep making me like jump and twitch so (laughs) it's a good it's scary um seven for me i really really dug it i felt like it was was very scary at parts I just wouldn't have minded a little bit more. Um, there were just a few parts that felt slower in terms of the horror. But, like, still, Seven is a pretty freaking scary book. 
Kiara? I think I would also say nine. I haven't read a ton of cosmic horror, and so this kind of lit that fire within me that makes me want to read more in that shivery kind of way. Like sitting here, I have a cat. It's good. He's guarding, but I still feel kind of nervous and shaky inside. I love that. Let's make us all shake and nervous further with your quote. Okay, so this is from a translation from uh, the Latin text, which was called uh, A Little Night Work, which is such a benign name for such a <laughs> horrific collection of terrible things. Um, but there's one poem that the eye translates, and it's called On the Miasma of Soldiers and the Beacon of Cruelty. And there's this part in it that is just so... I don't know. It, it creeps me out, but I love it. I can't stop thinking it. I almost want to like chant it to myself, which also creeps me out. Um, but <laughs> also, I, probably not a great idea to chant <laughs> yeah, right? something that you know Need brings all of this healthy. dread and existential fear into our life. But it, it really it sticks with you. I and I think this will kind of lead into the next one too because it's a similar idea of something sticking with you. But it goes blood calls to blood bad calls to bad and through pain and sacrifice we draw the gaze of hidden eyes of titanic movements beyond the stars yeah i love that and if we want to like break it down on an occult level you know when you talk about energy you know if you want to talk to demons or to summon demons you have to kind of meet them on their level bad draws to bad blood draws to blood it's kind of this back and forth calling of darkness it is, which is terrifying when you put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about more demons then. Yeah. <laughs> or the lack of demons. What? No. <laughs> okay. All right, Nathaniel, do you want to move on to this next novella? Give us a rundown real quick. Okay, so my heart struck sorrow. So to kind of briefly summarize this piece, this is following a man... Uh, named Cromwell. He is a folklorist, and basically when a uh, woman that he was in contact with uh, dies, she allows him and his uh, department uh, at a university to go and get the... or basically go and, and listen to a bunch of music uh and, that are, you know, on these, like, ancient acetate re uh, recordings and also, you know, read the uh, writings of a previous folklorist who was going through uh, the South, basically looking for folk music. And specifically, he was really obsessed with one song in particular called uh, either Staggerly or Stackily, uh, it it kind of referred to it uh, as both names, but do we have this folklorist name on hand, Nathaniel? It is Harlan oh, Parker. There we go. Yes, yeah. Just because I think it's important to keep these two folklorists like Distinct. separate. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so yeah, Parker is yeah obsessed with this one song because of like something related to the death of his mother. And so he is going and you know, and he's collecting these 
songs, and, and he's hired by the Library of Congress to do all of this. And but you know, whenever he does this, you know, the the one that he really wants people to perform is whatever version of Stagali that they uh, have. And there's something about this song that is evil. Like it seems like it it is either you know telling the story of about a man who like ki- who after or you know he's a murderer he is put to death and then when he dies and goes to hell if if we have some of the really more extended versions of the song he kills the devil in hell and becomes you know kind of the new devil and it's this you know kind of really interesting story where you know, as he gets closer and closer to this story, weirder and weirder things happen. You know, they, they he starts to be kind of pulled into, you know, just like relationships or just meeting people who are aware of the power of the song and, and many people are afraid of it. And so, you know, some people will refuse to perform it or some people will play things that are connected to it and that also will be hypnotic and suddenly like, I don't know, he'll wake up and the building's on fire and their car's destroyed and his friend is gone and things like that. And so it's just, you know, trying to solve this mystery. And so, you know, we have our modern day folklorist, Cromwell, trying to, you know, make sense of all of this while Harlan, you know, as as he's reading and listening to Harlan Parker. And so he's becoming obsessed with Harlan Parker's obsession and it's just this know, fascinating, terrifying story. I, oh, I am so in love with this story. Yeah, and I think we should definitely kind of lean in first to the prose of the story, because to be, like, transparent here, you really enjoyed this story. Yeah. Kiara and I really didn't enjoy this story, so... the uh, the difference of opinion here is going to be really interesting, I think, as we dive into a lot of the different reasons why we did and didn't like. Uh, so for me, again, as a demoniac, whatever you want to call it, I think that's actually the term used for someone who is possessed. Yes, it is. Uh, which might be true. That's fine. Uh, is This is a classic tale of kind of that Faustian bargain with Mes- Mephistopheles, right? Yep. Uh, this the Stack of Lee song represents the origin of blues and jazz music, this subculture that existed in America that everyone thought was very dark and taboo because it was African-American. It was the slave culture. And so this white dominance projected a lot of this satanic overtone to it all that really just has no place. And what I really liked about this story is it made me think quite a bit about the founder of blues music, you could say, Robert Johnson, uh, who was a, a black man living in the South. And the story goes that he was kind of this womanizer, deadbeat. Uh, he couldn't go anywhere with his music. And then all of a stu- sudden, overnight, he could play the guitar like nobody else. And this myth started to arise. Well, he's african-american so the only way that that could have happened is he must have made a deal with the devil and you get this whole idea of the crossroads and mephistopheles or the african god of the crossroads and death uh, legba 
and it just is this very convoluted story that is so integral into jazz and blues music that a lot of us don't quite understand that there's a lot of you know surprise surprise america systemic and internal racism that gave us a lot of this art and the idea of stackily staggerly and the origin of it and how it's evolved through time and it means something to different races it means something to different families that to me was so poetic as far as a sociological viewpoint of demonology mm -hmm. and the sociology of demons as a whole that you know i'm under the opinion that demons are a projection of our subconscious our negative energy we're projecting that to create a tulpa to create some sort of metaphor to explain away all of our you know wicked behavior um i i sound like i'm very esoteric and philosophical right now um but to get to kind of the point that i'm trying to make is this story is about racism mm. it is about kind of the white interpretation of this satan story and how it is evil all right and that's my soapbox kiara nathaniel take it away yeah, I think it's interesting that you say the story is about racism because I, I think one of the problems that I had with it is I think Cromwell is intensely unlikable. Yeah. And it's interesting not. because as a white man who has kind of this same exact role as Harlan Parker, I think he sees himself as Harlan Parker and he's had a similar tragedy in his life. Like he's recently lost his wife and his baby. And I think that as he's reading Parker's journal, he is getting from it something totally different than what was perhaps meant to be gotten from it. Um, and I, I do like that parallel aspect, and, and Jacobs does talk quite a bit about how Cromwell, you know, is kind of stuck on that line, like there's no endings, only beginnings. Um, and I think that kind of like leads into the fact that he sees himself as, as a Parker, but it's just so interesting that you have such a rich, historical backdrop and Cromwell is uninterested in any of that. Yeah, Cromwell is a very selfish character. Can we just like get that out on the the front page? Uh, I I did not feel any sort of compassion to his blight and his situation. He'd cheated on his wife with another, you know, employee at this uh Library of Congress situation. And I I found myself just not interested in the book when we went to modern day. This was also problematic with Hattie. Kiara, do you want to just seethe about Hattie with us for a minute? <laughs> yeah, so Hattie, she has a lot of thoughts about the whole endeavor, you know, about their opinions. Uh, when I say there, I mean, you know, Parker initially, but then also I think she's kind of uh, wrapping up Cromwell and that about like their opinions of women about how um, the fact that they are recording people uh, to be played for white people um, is very exploitative. Um, and also she talks a lot about how Parker seems to kind of be more performative in his respect for black people. So I guess my issue with Hattie is, is I can't tell if Hattie's opinion is her own as a character or if jacob if jacobs is using her to tell us that we like failed to pick up on these little nuances which kind of bothers me because i i want to be able to pick up on those things and if it's 
if it's kind of me being spoon fed that there's a problem with the way that he's seeing things, then I don't I don't like that as much as if you know Hattie has come to these conclusions on her own as a character that's real and alive in this story. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know we've kind of devolved into kind of what we didn't like some of the aspects there. Um, so let's maybe rewind a little bit. Nathaniel, give us a synopsis as why you think this story was so good. You rated it up, like really high. Yes, I did. Um, so to me, what I found wonderful about this story, one, the way that it, it looked at folklore and how folklore is kind of collected and shifts and and just kind of the na the nature of trying to you know even understand a single piece of art and how everyone has their own interpretation and their own version of it and things like that was just utterly fascinating to me um i i don't know i, th I think in another life if i wasn't a, a teacher and a, a writer i would be a folklorist i i find this kind of thing utterly just super super engaging and to to cut in here a little bit too, I did think of you while I was reading about what these folklorists were doing. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's really fun to read a story, you know, a literary story about the Library of Congress. Like, why have we not had more of that? This documenting of history by authors for authors, or you know, whatever you <clears throat> want to call it. That to me was like, oh, this is Nathaniel's dream job here to go around the country and find old manuscripts and old stories and like archive them. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, when I was in college, I took a post 9-11 literature class. And part of what was so interesting about it was that the the class was looking at 9-11, like, like we had to study, you know, the event, we had to study the 9-11 commissioner's report, we had to like memorize the names of the terrorists, like everything. Like it was very intense in that respect. Um, we also looked at kind of our own personal experiences with 9-11. And also, uh, there is, uh, at Utah State, where I went, in their library, they had a, like, folklore collection of people's recollections of 9-11. Um, you know, some people that were there, other people just, you know, talking about the, that day. And so... Like being able to like look at one event and how every person you know was interpreting it differently, and you know we had the hard facts version versus like what everyone's individual experiences were, and and being able to like study those and then study literature that kind of uh, played with all of those ideas and themes and all of that was just oh, one of the one of the best things I've ever done uh, in my education, and so. You know, having a story that deals with those ideas and presents it in such a way that it, that feels very organic and interesting, and and, and uh, also, yeah, shows how imperfectly we try to make sense of history. You know that. You know, I I agree that that at times, uh, you know, going back or going to Hattie, you know, and and how kind of on the nose she was with uh, a lot of her critiques. I I felt like the ideas that she was bringing up, the way that she was kind of challenging, you know, her, her counterpart Cromwell was, was really refreshing because I think a lot of times we look at something like folklore or a moment in history and we look at the perspectives that, that we can 
seeing like, oh, I understand it so well. And then just having come, someone else just say, no, you don't, you're looking at it through one lens, not many lenses, or, you know, you're, it's, it's the white man's version of, uh, you know, looking at black music. That was interesting and I, I think worth pointing out that, you know, all of this is way more complicated uh, than it, you know, appears on the surface. So I love that, too. But I, I agree, yeah. like, some of the ways that she was delivering her points was a little bit too on the Yes, that's a, that's a great way to put it. And I think if she had been more present, uh, you know, if we'd gotten to see her a little bit more in the present time, it, it wouldn't have felt quite as two-horned, maybe, to me. Because you make a good point, you know, I have to confess that until Hattie brought some things up, maybe I didn't see them that way either. Um, specifically with the way that she talked about women, which is interesting given that I am a woman. So I, I do agree that it's nice to have that foil there. I just maybe wish that she had been a more prominent character. So I would have, I don't know, taken her more as a, a serious part of the story instead of just kind of like this side character that's, that's there like, Flippy and to, to tell you things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, you both bring up really good points, and it, it kind of solidifies in some regard my opinion of this story as well, though, because Nathaniel, a lot of what you were talking about, it wasn't necessarily about the horror or the plot of the story. It, it felt like you were more focused on kind of the more holistic nature of what was going on and the the deep understanding of folklore and how it started and where it's going uh so correct me if i'm wrong here though uh that's just kind of what i gathered from your explanation is you were more attracted to what its message was about folklore than you were to the horror elements of it i'll say that that was what attracted me first but when the horror elements came in oh oh they punched hard I yeah the two punches. <laughs> no, see to me, okay. Yeah, sorry for the sass, but this is a huge issue I have with the second part. You know, it, that's fine. We had we had very different experiences. <laughs> true, um, true, and and you know, like I think part of it too is is you know like the the different places we've lived maybe can inform stuff you know like you you have spent time in South America so maybe that's part of why that uh, made you connect more with that first story I spent time in the South um, yeah Nathaniel that is a brilliant insight I completely overlooked that and and so yeah like I I think you know there are certain things that are going to make us drawn more to one story than the other um, what I liked. Also, so I'm, I'm going to dig into a few more literary elements before I get into the horror, because I don't get to talk about those that much on the podcast. Um, <laughs> it, so I, I felt like one thing that, that this story did very brilliantly was it showed us the personalities uh, and voices of these characters. You know, specifically Cromwell and, and Parker were so fleshed out to me. Like, yeah, I hated Cromwell, too, but that was the point. Um, you know, Cromwell was, yeah, so dislikable and so frustrating and so full of himself. And I think that's part of maybe why we didn't see as much of Hattie is because, you know, Cromwell is, you know, the the end-all, be-all folklorist, and Hattie was there as a formality in his mind. And so 
I think that was a deliberate choice, you know, to to for for the you know author to kind of reduce Hattie because Cromwell is the viewpoint character and Cromwell doesn't take her seriously. Um, but you know, especially Parker, his his narrative voice was very authentic and engaging, and it was really fascinating to also see his voice through two different lenses. One, just, you know, the moments of the recordings and the little snippets we get of him, you know, kind of, you know, asking people questions or kind of coaching them through making these recordings. And then, you know, seeing his journal and how that kind of provides a lot of context for what we have in the recordings. And so even having one character's voice in two different contexts was really good for me. Um, And and to be fair, I I really enjoyed reading... uh, the Harlan Parker moments, uh, especially in the beginning, in the middle of the book, I thought his voice and his prose were just on par with the first novella. Um, he was a much more likable character than Harlan, and I think that was, or, in some regards, Cromwell. intentional. Cromwell, excuse me. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I agree. And and I, I think what what Cromwell does in this story is that he provides a foil to Parker. Um, both in terms of, like, their personalities and their, like, sincerity and, and even, like, their reasons for doing the things that they're doing. You know, that they have commonality in terms of, like, hey, I mean, they're folklorists. You know, that's a very specific job. But the, uh, their attitudes towards, you know, what they're studying and why they're studying it and all of that are very different in a lot of ways. Um, and also, I, I feel like Cromwell's story kind of serves as a foil for Parker's story because we have this very kind of modern thing and this one that is set in a very specific period of time. And we're able to see, I think, that um, you know this uh, story from the past still has an impact on the modern day, you know, even though the world has changed, even though our um, you know, perception or, you know, dialogue around race has changed, you know, point to, to Hattie bringing up the points that she does to Cromwell, you know, all of those things have, have shifted, but yet at its core, the thing that is here is a story about obsession and madness and, and real life horrors mixed in with these inexplicable cosmic horrors. Um, so getting into the horror like what i loved is the 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 moments of of horror which yes there weren't as many of them as i would have liked um but but the moments that that we had which you know we had basically when they meet a woman um out in the woods and then like very hypnotically they they presumably have sex with her uh Parker and his uh, uh, assistant Bunny do, um, and that's like one of the recordings. And then a tent show where Bunny disappears, and like they like Parker sees basically some sort of devil figure, and it's really uh, horrific. And then also a, a jail scene um, has a lot of uh, really intense, bizarre horror too. Those moments were just so hypnotic and pulled me in so effectively 
that I just like that they they filled um at least everything that came after them with dread because they were so powerful for me. So that was that was one of the big things for me was that those moments even though there weren't yeah tons and tons of moments of horror when I did have it it had just these ripple effects through the rest of the story that just um I still haven't stopped thinking about. Yeah, I, I would agree with you to some extent with the horror elements of it. Um, I thought, you know, I, I think I commented to you, Nathaniel, in a text that this second story was really slow to me and I was kind of struggling with it. I had put the book down for a while after what the first novella did to me. Um, and so I was kind of getting back into it. And I was a little bored, if I'm honest. And then that Moira scene happens where they're recording her and she just screams. And then they wake up and they're having sex on the tape. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, here we are. This is like the beginning. This is like novella. One, the horror is going to start. And then it just kind of deadpans for, you know, several more chapters. And then we get to that circus scene. And God, that circus scene was terrifying. Um, This giant of a man who's albino and he has sores and he's got his giant penis flopping around and then he slowly diminishes into a maggot and i have in our notes that this whole description was set to you know literary descriptions of music and guttural chanting and singing and it was like you could hear the music by reading and that was mysterious and cool and powerful and and really unnerving. And Kiara, I think I text you at that moment like, oh God, it's starting. Here it is. The second story gets really good again. Yeah, and that what, that's what prompted me to dive back in. And from there, I, I finished it really quickly. But, but again, and then it just kind of flatlines again until the jail. And then you have that cosmic horror start up again of, you know, Cromwell doesn't really know where he's at. I, I can't, I keep getting him mixed up. Good grief. Well, Parker, he doesn't know what's really going on, and it's juxtaposed. The juxtaposition starts to to take an effect of, is this reality? Is he imagining all of this? And then for me, after the jail, it didn't get scary anymore. It just it deflated entirely. I wasn't scared after the circus. I kept waiting for that same resonance that same horror vibration to hit me in reading these words and just being so spooked that i was hearing music in my mind that i was just creating from this author's description and i just didn't get that anymore and kiara i know you kind of had a similar vibe with it right yeah i mean like you've said the the piece the parts that were horror and scary were very very well written and they really sucked you in I I did get it a little bit when he finally made it to Cider's end. Um, but I think at that point, when it kind of shifted over to Molly um, describing what had happened, that's when I really just was like, okay, this is kind of, this is the end, I guess, and it's just winding down from here. But I I don't know. There were some things that just, it was underwhelming to me that, or I guess, I don't know how I feel about a lot of aspects of these, this story. In some ways, I like the things that I don't like, which seems like an oxymoron. Uh, but the fact that 
part of Parker's whole character is that he thought that he witnessed or his mother had drowned and he thought that this man that his mother had been with had been the one to drown her. Um, and when he kind of communes with his mom at Cider's End and she says, no, I just drowned. That was so depressing in some ways because that's kind of what Jump started his whole life. Um, also, I started to question at that point, because um, Hattie had mentioned it, you know, did Parker just have syphilis and was he just going crazy? Like everything that he was saying in his novel fit kind of descriptions of late stage syphilis. And when Molly is talking about how um, Parker looks, she, she describes that he has sores by his mouth, I think. And that kind of made me, you know, Molly's this ambiguous character where she wrote this thing and her hair had turned white after witnessing it. And so she's supposedly the evidence. But at the same time, like, is our narrator unreliable? You know, did any of this happen? Was Parker just completely crazy? Um, did he just have syphilis and went mad? And I think that that part of it, I don't know, I wanted it to be very clear that this was real, this was happening, this was scary. And I think at that point I was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe it wasn't. See, for me, like, that is a selling point. I love having that level of ambiguity and, you know, like, hey, I could interpret it this way, or I can interpret it that it was really just, like, straight-up evil. And, you know, it's it's kind of up to, to me to decide. I like when authors give me that kind of power back. Because, yeah, like, yeah, for sure. Like, our, our narrators, all you know, all of the narrators in this story are extremely unreliable. Especially, I think, you know, when we're considering how, you know, we have Parker is, you know, a, an alcoholic and he is, yeah, pot- potentially full of syphilitic insanity and all of that. Yeah, like, to me, that that always feels like a selling point to me. I, I see why that's not satisfying for everybody, but whenever I encounter that in, in literature, I always go, yeah! That's the thing that sets me Googling to try to see what other people think. And I wish I wasn't like that. I wish I really liked the ambiguity, but I just want to know sometimes. <laughs> so for me... Um... You know, it wasn't so much the ambiguity at the end uh, with Parker's kind of descent into madness and then ultimately Cromwell's as well. I was really let down that, you know, three-fourths of this novella seemed very demonic-focused. This story of Staggerly, Stackley, however you want to call it, and then you get this scarlet crown that Parker is searching for. And again, we, we pull in the blood metaphors and this black wall where the king of hell kind of sits behind all of this very demonic text that that there was no real subtext there unless i missed it there is a little Um, bit but go on and then and then we get to the end and i feel like it shifts dramatically it takes a left turn and all of a sudden it's not about satan and his demonic forces anymore it's about this man who's trying to reconcile his past and his sin through necromancy. And the whole point of Stagger Lee was to kneel at this avenging angel and you know, summon Moira, who happened to be an agent maybe of hell who could speak 
to the dead. It just, it started to crumble apart for me from a demonic standpoint, especially where the emphasis was the Stagger Lee story. And, you know, he's a bad man, Stagger Lee. He's in cahoots with the devil. I, I just felt like the devil idea was abandoned real quick right at the end. So I might be able to get some insight on that. So the 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 king that it keeps referring to, because it says that, that Staggerly kills the devil, and then there's like something worse, you know, behind that wall. And it talks about yeah, Crimson Crown and stuff like that. All of this felt like it was kind of its own version of uh the king or the uh king in yellow, uh which is uh something that exists adjacent to the Cthulhu mythos. Um so the king in yellow is by one of the other big, you know, kind of fathers of cosmic horror, um, Robert Chambers. But and a lot of people will will you know specifically say it's in the Cthulhu mythos. It's kind of um, like like something to know about kind of a lot of the early cosmic horror writers is that they all kind of played in each other's universes you know that's why i think you know it it became so acceptable and and so widespread for the cthulhu mythos to kind of be you know played with by so many writers um you know including you know the writers of uh the conan the barbarian books and stuff like that where like that's technically in the same universe in a lot of ways um and so uh lovecraft Actually, uh, one of his uh, evil gods is Haster, who is is supposed to be the king in yellow, um, which is, you know, Chambers' creation. But the king in yellow is basically something that is more evil and more powerful than the devil. And so that is, I think, what, what we're seeing reference to here, is that the king in yellow is supposed to be the king in hell that is more powerful than Stack of Lee or the devil. And, you know, that is this basic, you know, it, I, I think um, you're supposed to kind of pick up on, hey, you know, even the, the baddest bad man who could even kill the devil, he is nothing compared to this figure, this, you know, equivalent to the king in yellow. And so... All of those other things are very kind of Lovecraftian, you know, approaches to, oh, well, we're just, you know, uh, communing with the dead. We're doing this little spell. We're just trying to have these, like, personal things. You know, all of those are, you know, basically good cosmic horror is a very personal story set against this impossible, unknowing level of evil and madness. And so... Even, you know, the worst man that's ever lived cannot even scratch the surface of the power of the the crimson crown, you know, that that the the one who actually is behind the wall in hell. Like so that was you know, so it, it I think abandoned kind of the Judeo Christian hell um partway through the story and said, Hey, there is basically Lovecraftian gods or a Lovecraftian god that is so much worse than any of that. And that's interesting, and I love that. You know, I, I'm now going to Google Haster and the, the, the figure in yellow. I'll lend you a copy but of I the game like in yellow. I I think it 
solidifies my opinion more because that is forcing readers to understand Lovecraftian lore on a level that makes them afraid of what's coming. And that's not fair to readers. That's assuming that we have knowledge going into this novella uh, to play into the fear elements. That this, you know, king in yellow or whatever, the man behind the wall, is this Lovecraftian cosmic entity that I have no idea about, so I'm not going to be afraid of it. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, I think it's it's just one of those, it's um, a matter of audience, right? Like, I think it's one yeah, of those, sure. those things where, because I did have that baseline of knowledge, I was the right audience for those moments to really deliver. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, like, I agree. I, I, I wish he would have done more to, I think, explain what he was doing yes, with his equivalent that's... character, so that way it could be more universally uh, approachable. I, I still feel I... like those those moments were good, but, you know, since, yeah, that kind of thing didn't really land for you the same way it did for me, I, 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 I honestly just kind of feel like it's a, a, a missed opportunity because, man, it landed for me real hard. So. So that's that's a very fair critique where, you know, the accessibility for it wasn't present unless you already had, you know, a certain level of, you know, kind of hardcore cosmic horror knowledge. Yeah, I, I wish he would have given us that dread that he established in that first book. I didn't need to know what the cosmic entity was. <clears throat> in the first novella to know that it was terrifying and dark. So had he been able to kind of explain that this figure behind the black wall, you know, was stronger than the devil. And he did do that through the Stagger Lee songs in some way, but it was very subtle. And it, I don't know, Kiar, what do you think now knowing all of this Cthulhu mythos? I'm trying to reconcile it. I, I definitely don't think I thought about it that hard. I, I thought about it more, I guess, from, more of the lens of it just kind of being like a local thing you know we talked about baba yaga earlier mm-hmm. so yeah. i thought maybe it was just kind of this cultural spookiness that was located in the south and and that's kind of the extent of of the thought that i gave that i think one of the things that i struggled with is i'm a very visual person um and it was really hard for me that this story was focused on um, auditory type things. So I have to confess, you know, with the, the repetition of Staggerly or Stackerly over and over in the pages with slightly different changes, because song lyrics are so different from normal poetry, you kind of need that music aspect to carry it. I think that perhaps I just didn't internalize a ton of the the building horror that I was supposed to get from the song and the added version, mm-hmm. um, that added verses, and then the, the crowned and scarlet pieces, um, which I, I mean, to your point, could just <laughs> mean that maybe one, I didn't have the background knowledge to truly appreciate it. And two, maybe I needed a little more handholding than I want to admit for this one. And, and another thing that actually might uh, explain a lot of the differences and experiences here along those lines is I listened to the audiobook of this one. Um, and mm. like, so, you know, both of you read the text version 
And so, yeah, like to me, the the people that were performing both of these novellas, uh, particularly My Heart Struck Sorrow, really had this kind of musicality and, and it kind of brought up the, the natural sort of rhythmic nature of it because I, I was listening to it. You know, they didn't, you know, create music for, for all of the scenes, you know, it was still just the text of the book, but, you know, even just like, you know, listening to uh, poetry versus reading a poem is a very different experience. And so, you know, it's one of those things that I think maybe why it hit as hard as it did for me and why it was so entrancing for me was partially because I was listening to it. So maybe the key for uh, anyone who is listening to this and is like, hey, I want to check this out now, uh, maybe get it on audio. Yeah, yeah you're making really me want to listen to it again with audio. <laughs> same, same. All right. Well, um, I, I feel like we've we've definitely covered this, and we're honestly a little bit over on on our usual time. Um, should we dig into crowns? Yeah, I gave it a five. Um, I know that's really low, but for me, this this book did not hit like. <laughs> My gosh, this novella did not hit me like that first novella. And Nathaniel, you brought up a lot of good points. I have a lot of experience in South America. Um, I did not know kind of this Lovecraftian Haster God, and I just did a quick Google search, and they are terrifying, and I love them, yes. and they will be my new best friend. But a lot of that context, I think, weakened its effectiveness for mm -hmm. me. So I give it a five. I the horror was great, but to go back to my first sassy comment, I felt like it only punched me with that horror two and a half times. Kiara, what did you give it? I'm going to give it an eight. I still really liked it. I think this one, for me, reminded me a little bit of Chuck Palahniuk. Um, You know, when you read his books, you always find out a lot about things that maybe you didn't want to know a lot about. Yes. <laughs> this kind of had that same vibe one with you know uh this folklore aspect which was really interesting but then you know even just like the acetates with the soundscriber that was really interesting and i'd never even thought about how music or records would have been recorded and i love chuck Palahniuk, so um i think overall yeah i would still give this an eight uh, i would give it a nine and a half i think that there are you know if you flaws and i i think we've identified those um but you know like i said i was i was the perfect audience for this one um i i really couldn't love it more why well, i mean apparently i could a uh, half a point more but, <laughs> but but oh i i've been writing the the high of listening to that that book for a while so um, moving on to screams, I guess I can kick us off this time. Uh, I gave it an eight and a half. Uh, again, I would have given it a higher one if there were more moments of, of horror, but the ones that it gave me really, really unsettled me, especially that circus scene. Yeah, I gave it a six. Those, those horror moments were so effective. Uh, that circus scene really was unsettling and terrifying. I just wanted more of it. Uh, I think again, I would I would give it an an seven. Um, I can't help but think that this would make an awesome movie, and maybe that's just uh, again because I couldn't really appreciate the the song portion of it. But 
just the idea of like the oppression of the heat of a southern summer and you know the strange goings on I think the tension would really translate in film so when I was reading it even though you know reading it I wasn't necessarily getting that I was still imagining you know how grand this could be on screen and how well things would translate that way so or a full cast like audio uh drama yeah yes or even like i want hbo or like showtime to get a hold of it because i really think they would capture kind of that severity of this entire book i remember reading one scene where they're talking about sweating in their car driving down georgia i think Mm -hmm. Uh, no in tennessee and i just thought like "Ah, that would be unbearable i hate getting slightly hot to sweat in my car with nothing to do about it that's the worst (laughs) yeah oh can i uh before we move on can i just make uh make one more connection i think maybe why i was so drawn to this story uh just so if anyone is unaware there is uh there was a real composer uh Scriabin, who uh, attempted to <laughs> the unsound. Yes, um, he he tried to create using things like sacred sacred geometry and lots of mystical things. Um, he he tried to make a uh, composition called Mysterium that was intended to destroy the universe if it was played in a certain location at a certain time. And, um, so it just, just ideas of, like, music that has, like, that level of, like, evil power just is also absolutely fascinating to me. I just kept thinking about Scriabin and, um, I don't know. It, it, it's just another thing that, like, I'm already kind of obsessed with that, that kept floating <laughs> into my head the whole time I was reading this. So that might be part of why I love yeah. this so much, too. I mean, there's a ton of lore about, you know, the Devil's Chord, which is a tritone. Yeah. Um, it's like C and F-sharp, I think. I, I, I don't know. I'm not by any means a music theologist or whatever. Theorist, excuse me. Theologist is different. Uh, but summoning evil through kind of dissonant sounds. You have the unsound of Scriabin. Uh, and then again, all of this blues and jazz lore about mm. the devil made packs with these artists so that his music could come through. And we even get stuff like this in the Satanic Panic, like taking your vinyls and playing them backwards. Yeah. Uh, demonology and music have been best friends since music started, or at least since yeah. you know, the, yeah, I mean that, that the that's... Christians got a hold of pagan culture. No, like like <laughs> I mean, I think even before that, you know, that's that's why so many you know, early music things were, you know, oh, they could only be performed by human voices or things like that, because otherwise it is evil or perverse or profane in some way. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Just a quick Google search. I remember this phrase, Diabolus and Musica, the devil in music. Yeah. Well, uh, how is everyone staying spooky these days? Uh, Kiara, let's make you go first. Okay. Um, I, well, I've always been obsessed with uh, the Let's Read podcast and basically users submit stories, real life stories that happen to them, and then he reads them in this like gloriously deep voice. And that is my bedtime story. Anytime I'm too stressed to fall asleep, I listen to the Let's Read podcast. 
Um, and I probably had a lot of weird dreams because of it. <laughs> this explains so much of what you <laughs> tell me. I know, I send you a lot of my, my weird dreams that I write up right in the middle of the night when I wake up. But I love that. I always have. And then this last week, I, I watched Antlers, which oh boy, I have some thoughts about. And then I think Max, you're probably going to mention these two, but I saw X with you, and then um, we, around the same time, watched Fresh. Yeah, that's uh, kind of what I wanted to talk about. Fresh is on Hulu. It's got Sebastian Stan in it, good old Bucky Barnes from the Avenger movies. Um, this is my nomination right now for Best Horror of 2022. This is a wild ride. It's original. It's spooky. It's unsettling. It's exciting. It's fun. Like, it was just a great time. I watched it and I was mad that I didn't discover this movie because of how good it was. Um, Nathaniel, you have to watch this because it is near perfect for me, this movie. Oh, it's on the list. Uh, I also watched X. I want to, you know, we live in Utah. It's a very religious demographic out here. X is kind of this crazy sexual ride. If you struggle with sex topics in media, whether that is the portrayal of sex or talking about sex, nudity, anything like that, maybe avoid this movie because it it really is talking about sex and how how one generation views it and how another generation views it and how different that is, but also how similar it is. And in that space where the horror, that's where the horror comes from. Um, It's bonkers. It's not a perfect movie. Uh, There's a lot that is silly with it and ridiculous, but at the end of the day, Kiara, after we finished watching it, we were just kind of enthralled with it. It was this, just this trip of a movie. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. It it was really original to the Point where we had so much to say about it and i honestly it's been a couple weeks now and i had forgotten a lot of pieces about it until you started talking and then i just had all these images flash through my mind and i was like oh man i want to talk about this <laughs> so good uh, nathaniel you need to watch this one too because there's a lot of commentary that i think would be fun to talk mm-hmm. about in particular where the horror comes from this. yes this Without idea spoiling anything but right you know because you haven't seen it this idea of sex and again how different it is for different generations but then how it's the same we all have a biological need for sex and what that makes us do so anyway it's great it's bonkers it's a hoot uh, the last thing i've been doing to stay spooky is mark and i uh, my partner we watched ghostbusters 2021 last week afterlife hot hot garbage hot steaming garbage Ooh, it made me mad uh the the female adaptation of ghostbusters was leagues better than this adaptation so i said it mike has dropped make your decision but it just oh it was disappointing and i love ghostbusters that's so funny. The bar for me for movies, I'm very critical of books, uh, but the bar for me for movies is whether or not I was entertained. And I, I was entertained by the afterlife one. Yeah, 
Yeah, see, I was not. Mark and I were just exhausted. We just wanted it to end. <laughs> and it never ended. Well. Alright, Nathaniel, you're up. Uh, so I've been staying spooky by reading the House of Leaves teleplays. Um, I think I've talked about House of Leaves on the podcast before. If, if anyone's not familiar, it is... A... Maybe once or twice? This is <laughs> like a core identity to you, Nathaniel. I, mean, no. I guess, for those of you who don't know, it is a horror novel that I am obsessed with. Um, it is... It, it plays with the typography in really interesting ways. Um, and so it's, I mean, essentially it's about a house that's bigger on the inside than the outside, but it's absolutely terrifying and brilliant. And, um, yeah, it just plays with, like, how the text appears on the page in really, really fascinating ways. Um, I just recently learned that the author uh, wrote three scripts, the first three episodes of what would be uh, a television series based on House of Leaves, and I oh, heard damn. that, and I said, how is that even how? remotely possible? Yeah. Um, and so I, I had to get, you know, get my hands on them. They're available on his website, and uh, they are very interesting. Um, it, it manages to get into the, you know, big ideas of House of Leaves, but also you know, introduces a whole new cast of characters and ideas and plot lines and stuff. It was uh, really, really fascinating. Highly recommend uh, checking out for anyone who loves House of Leaves. So, anyways, that is how I've been staying spooky. All right. Well, good episode. Thanks for everyone listening and staying along with us. We know this is a bit of a longer episode, but we were really dissecting two, two topics today. Mm -hmm. So, I think it's well-deserved. Indeed. Well, uh, everyone should, uh, oh, and, uh, Kiara, do you, uh, want to share where people can find you online, or just keep that? I'm anonymous. can't find me anywhere. Okay. If, if people want to reach you, they can, I guess, send us emails and we can pass it along? <laughs> yeah, or just, just chant the poem from... <laughs> <laughs> the first novella and i'll appear excellent i mean to be fair even if you chant that there's a five to ten business day window before kiara will respond to you so <laughs> yeah all right that's true well uh, thanks for for uh coming back and um i guess for all of our listeners stay spooky stay spooky stay spooky Need even more Scream Kings? Here's our obligatory shameless social media plug. Follow us on Twitter or Instagram at Scream Kings Pod. You could also email us at ScreamKingsPodcast at gmail.com. Help us reach a wider audience of horror fans by leaving a review on iTunes or by sharing a link on social media. You can also support the show by going to Patreon.com forward slash Scream Kings. Stay spooky.